Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society to discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Romola Gary is best known for starring in period television shows such as The Hour, Emma, The Crimson Petal and The White and The Miniaturist. Her big screen appearances include acclaimed films like I Capture the Castle, Atonement and Suffragette. Now she's making her debut as a writer and director with a horror film, Amulet. A homeless ex-soldier in London is offered a place to stay at a decaying house inhabited by a young woman and her dying mother and begins to suspect something unnatural is living there too. Here's a taste. There are many like you, Thomas, who seek refuge here. This is Magda. Her mother lives on the top floor. She's very ill. Why me? You're a builder, right? That's what you said? You try to make things bearable for them. She needs companionship. Mother won't like it. Magda is young, Thomas. She could become attached. Roma Ligari, welcome to Times Radio. Um, I have to ask you first of all, because I'm hopeless with horror, uh, I think is, is the expression. What first interested you in horror? Are you a horror film fan? I am, yes. Um, I I love to be scared and I grew up loving horror and obviously there's been this incredible resurgence in the genre and we're living through something of a golden age so yeah I'm very excited to have made my um my feature debut in in the genre space. So give me an idea of the the horror films that you grew up watching and and would have informed in part your vision with Amulet. Uh, well, I was, a, you know, I suppose my first kind of big love was um, Polanski, Rosemary's Baby and The Shining. But I grew up really loving Cronenberg. So body horror was my kind of particular love. And there is uh, creature work in the film as well. So that's, um, you know, it's it's. 
there's a, a famous film Trouble Every Day by um, uh, Claire Denis, which is has um, a famous scene with a creature in it. So, yeah, creature work and body horror. Those were my kind of special interests. <laughs> and what is nice. And, um, um, and what is it that you love about being horrified? I think that I I think that the experience of being extremely afraid uh, when you're watching a film is something that you can um, get a kind of uh, cathartic release from, which, you know, doesn't happen in drama really nearly as much. I think uh, the sense that the horror is something that you can experience and then sort of um, learn to enjoy kind of subverts the experience of being afraid and makes it something kind of covertly pleasurable, which has been always something that I think I've I've really got a lot out of. Mm. Um, your producer Matthew James Wilkinson has called Amulet a feminist horror um, what do you think he means by that what does he mean by that oh who knows what that word means <laughs> anymore <laughs> um, and I would I'd be I'd be a very foolish woman to, to, to try and kind of state what feminism is or means anymore but I mean I'm always comfortable with the word and, and always comfortable being applied to to anything that I do creatively or or otherwise because you know if if nothing else it's a film that hopefully kind of asks the viewer to be aware of sex roles and gender roles when they're watching the film in in that sense it's you know something of a work of feminism and something of just a piece of work that is about the experience of of having a sex and being you know and how that interacts with how you're treated by society so it hopefully is as thought-provoking for men as it is for women but it's a really interesting thought because it would be a whole new genre really wouldn't it feminist horror uh, because there haven't been many um female film directors full stop let alone uh, female film directors working in in the horror genre and if you think about the amount of injustice and inequality and iniquity and fury and rage uh, that could be played out via that medium it would be really interesting wouldn't it I think there are some pieces of work that are coming. There was a great French film, um, Revenge, that came out like a couple of years ago. I mean, rape revenge is is a big part of actually, of horror. Um, traditionally, maybe been quite problematic, but now I think you know, particularly with female voices coming through in that space, um, uh, ho- hopefully being a bit less troublesome to watch, but. There's also, I think, a big move when women move into this space. I mean, yeah, they want to write about sexual politics. And I think there are films that you're seeing kind of discussing those issues. But then, you know, if you look at like women moving into the space like St. Maud or Censor that came out last year, they're not film. you know, they're by women. They have female protagonists, but they're not particularly about sexual politics because, you Mm. know, not all women are interested in that. You know, St. Maud was really good as well, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, amazing. Um, but you have said that you wrote the film around the time that Me Too began uh, and described it as an act of, of karmic reckoning. So that does suggest that you had to sort of um, underlying reasons for coming up with a story of this ilk. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it pre-Me Too, if we can even remember that far back. Um, <laughs> That's like AD, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I was already pretty me too before me too (laughs) as it were um so I think that that whole story and and everything that happened with that broke not that long after I wrote it It must have been around about the same the same time yeah and what did you want to do but tell me how the two uh, connect for you in terms of of of, you know the underlying themes yeah on a personal level I think that um 
you know obviously we I work in an industry which you know has you know as hopefully as people more aware of has an extremely complicated relationship with women like individual women and also the way that women are depicted um Mm. and I yeah I have I have sort of complex feelings about that um I love acting there's so much about it that I love and so many parts of the industry that I think are so valuable and defend hopefully all the time but I I think there are parts of it that uh, you know don't work for women and and not only for the women who work in the industry but also for the women who absorb the content and yeah and I was interested I think in having a bigger role to play in the narrative storytelling itself so you know I'd been writing for many years but then the move into directing my own work meant that I could really be involved in kind of telling the stories that I wanted to tell and you know, as any director who's ever worked with me will know, I always want to be very involved in the storytelling. So, you know, that was, uh, I think, a big relief for me that I could maybe balance out my career in, in that way. Do you think um, directors are uh, both shocked to find that you want to be involved and not particularly best pleased uh, because... There is a tradition, isn't there, of, you know, I mean, you know, to be fair, I suppose there's a tradition of, of both male and female actors being required to do what they're told and, and just sort of get on with it. There's a, there's a really hierarchical business to some extent, isn't it, though? You could argue that the best films aren't made that way. But there is definitely a culture of, of expectation of young, you know, attractive actresses just doing what they're told. Yeah, and I think the thing that's fascinating about directing and this is this is the case I think for lot for lots of artists is that there's different ways to do it like you can be a great director and the way that you achieve that is by relentlessly bullying everybody and in, into um submission you know you have such sort of strong and extreme sense of your own vision and that the way that you achieve the kind of greatest incarnation of that is to um yeah bully everybody into into uh yeah into a state of kind of almost totally totally accepting almost anything in order to go along with your version and we all know stories about directors who are like that and and in fact all artists you know finally you know painters or, or musicians but there is more than one way to do it and you know I I was supported hugely by a number of in terms of when I said you know I'd like to direct number of directors said yes I think that's a really good idea and um and then get her off the set the, get her off the yeah, set yeah yeah and offered you know countless hours of practical support answering emails being just being extremely supported and not at all threatened by it at all um and in fact, I think, you know, well, welcoming the opportunity to work with actors who understand, you know, now I really understand how incredibly direct, how difficult directing is. And, you know, having an actor who maybe is prepared to go up to you and say, I know you maybe could do with two or three versions of this scene. I'm not going to just kind of do one because, you know, that's the only way I can see it. You know, I hopefully have a greater understanding of the difficulty of that of that job, which can be a really good thing for a director, I think. I know that um, you made, I think, an award-winning short film before this one, but how confident did you feel uh, walking onto the set of Amulet? I mean, you are clearly someone who knows their own mind and knows what you want to do. It doesn't always uh, manifest itself in, you know, full confidence, does it? 
No, and I think, you know, the, the, like, like any kind of real leap, anybody who changes their career, anybody who takes a kind of big change in their life, you know, your feelings about it really shift, you know, I would go into work in the morning with all my storyboards thinking, you know, this is absolutely the best I've ever felt in my life. And then at 1230, when a scene isn't working, and everybody's looking at you, you know, you feel like I'm just going to lie down on the floor and start crying and let's <laughs> see what will happen then. You know, like it's it, it wasn't one thing or one experience, but 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 the end uh, um, effect of that, if it's not hard, if it's not challenging, then I don't really feel like you've engaged that sense of kind of courage that you need to change your life in some substantial way. So, you know, I relish the fact that it, it was at times really challenging. And I think that that engaging with that feeling of, of fear and risk was, you know, a big, a big positive for me how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Romila, I need to know a bit about you because you have definitely taken the path of most resistance, as it were. You know, you haven't taken the easy path. I know that your big Hollywood break was was supposed to be the starring role in Dirty Dancing Havana Nights in 2004, which turned out to be a, a bit of a disaster. I mean, we could start talking about that or you could tell me a little bit about you, young you. What, what What's given you this sort of sense of, of your own worth and confidence, you know, which is something that an awful lot of women still today you know unfortunately struggle with Mm, yeah but I don't even know that I think I think it 
it, it maybe suggests something like if you're the kind of person where if a, you know people say you're very outspoken in interviews but I think when people ask me a question I tend to just sort of blindly tell them exactly what I think and I feel yes and that's I your first mistake <laughs> <laughs> having a kind of total and complete lack of any ability to kind of think at all into the future or or to kind of be democratic at all is not the same as having a high level of self-esteem um you know I've basically just got a massive mouth and I think that that yeah that sometimes is, is misconstrued as being kind of an activist um which uh yeah I certainly have no pretensions to be yeah but you I mean you know at the same time you have done brave and striking things you know for example uh, you know I know it's not something that should define your life and interestingly I was thinking about it and um, when I interviewed Amanda Knox the other day you know whose whose name we hear about you know and looms really large but we don't know the name of the actual guy who committed uh, the murder you know of Meredith Kirchner and and I was thinking when it comes to Harvey Weinstein how many women have been defined only because they spoke out against him but you did uh, bring up uh, something that had happened uh, with you early quite early on in, in your career and that must have taken some courage even if you don't want it to be the thing that you know oh yeah Romola Gary she, she hashtag me too well, I think when somebody rang me up to ask me about that, they sort of, um, they said, have you ever had anything happen with Harvey Weinstein? And I was doing laundry at the time. And I said, oh, yes, this is a great story. And I told her the story because, I mean, I was extremely affronted about it, but I, I didn't feel, at the time, I didn't think I was in any danger. And at the time of telling her the story, I didn't realise what was all going to come out afterwards. Mm. So I was like, you know, this was, he, he was... Um, you know, a man who abused his power and treated women extremely badly. And it's, you know, idiomatic of a kind of, in, in you know, relationship the entire industry has with, with women and the commodification of young people, both of both sexes, you know. Um, mm. But I didn't think a great deal of it because, I mean, I don't think about what happened on that day at all. You know, it was 20 years ago. It was, you know, a tiny, tiny episode in my life. It certainly wasn't a defining moment by any means. And mm. then, you know, obviously I didn't realise what the kind of, what would happen in terms of the story and and I also didn't realize what would come out about him as a person and so obviously I had to slightly reframe that experience in my mind because I'd always thought you know well it was very unpleasant and I was made to feel very uh, embarrassed by it but I didn't think I was in any danger and you know then of course all of that came out and you think oh well actually you know maybe I was. Yeah I mean what did you think about it in the light of of the you know, terrible things that had happened to un other women. Because I know at the time, you know, sort of shortly after Me Too, well, uh, you know, following the death of Sarah Everard, the whole sort of everyone's invited thing came came to the fore. And there were an awful lot of young girls, and you know, we're talking about schoolgirls in this instance, who, who suddenly understood that things that had happened to them weren't okay and that there was this sort of harmful, uh, sexually aggressive and violent um, culture in schools. And, and, and were upset in the aftermath because they realized that these things weren't things that should have happened and could indeed have led to, you know, much more dangerous situations. Did you have any of that kind of realization? Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I had spent many years because I came into the industry in a very unusual way I didn't really pursue an acting career it was kind of offered to me and I didn't sort of go to drama school so I had none of the like 
you know, most people who do this job, they think this is what I want to do with my life. It's incredibly difficult thing to do. If I speak out about these things, then it will negatively, you know, affect my career. Absolutely will. Um, so, you know, why would I do that? You know, but I think I had a different relationship with it because I, you know, came into the industry at quite a young age, not really having had you know to sort of climb up the 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 mountain to kind of get anywhere so I, I felt more ambivalent about it and so I was happier to kind of take pot shots at things that I thought were wrong but I think that it's true to say that you know in terms of the, the way that the Me Too movement has kind of spread out and as you say kind of en- encompassed the whole issue with the experiences that girls have at school and all of these other you know extensions into other industries to say that you know women everywhere are having to kind of reframe a lot of their past experiences aren't they and um and think was I was I actually safe and even if I was safe is that something that should have happened to me and and if it shouldn't have happened should I be angry and what's the point of you know then what do I do with that anger should I seek some kind of redress and all of those kinds of questions to a greater or lesser extent I think are in my film Mm, yeah, indeed. And and you've talked uh, about that in terms of, I mean, you know, Harvey Weinstein is is a monster now, you know, he's demonized absolutely rightly so. And, and, you know, he's he's a sort of larger than life character, if you will, in, 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 in the annals of, you know, the history of, of you know, in, injustice to women. But what you point out, which I think is incredibly relevant and important, is that actually, if you spend your whole time uh, looking for monsters, then you miss where most of the the violence and aggression towards women comes from, which is in the day to day. Yeah, I think something that was really important for me to kind of write about or um you know, I make I make it sound more considered than it was that that did just come out was this sort of feeling that sometimes it's not men who hate women who do bad things to women. Sometimes it's men who really revere women that do bad things to women or undermine them or feel angry with them or disappointed by them because you know women are just human beings but the kind of concept of woman I suppose as to being a female you know and all that the concept of woman woman kind of represents can be a very big thing for for a man and a, and a woman who kind of breaks that contract or, or or separates herself from the idea of woman um mm. can that can be very threatening and can make men very angry or very undermining or like it can kind of trigger a lot of behaviors that yeah i think are quite problematic and and that's very distinct to men who you know hate women and that's a sort of you know obviously a slightly different thing yeah, and slightly easier to deal with. I mean, the idea that that Harvey Weinstein is a monster is something that we can all take on board and think that was monstrous and, you know, he's behind bars now and that's where he should be. But do you think that um, following his conviction, things have improved massively for women in film? Or do you think that by making it so subjective, so individual, it doesn't really help the, the greater cause? I think it's a very diverse picture and I think that there are some things that are absolutely you know unquestionably better I I think that most women entering the industry now know that it is potentially dangerous and therefore I think I would hope that kind of there would be the ameliorating effect of you're not allowed to audition a woman in your hotel room no matter 
who you are, you know, and mm. I think that there are concerted efforts being made to ensure that, you know, the, you know, the historical embarrassment of women locked out of directing completely is being actively corrected. And I think there are a lot of people in the industry really working to foreground uh, female voices in front of and behind the camera camera you know in a diverse in a in a diverse sort of sense hopefully but you know then also it is an industry that still has a massive imbalance of power at its heart and I think this the the sort of the issues that are affecting the industry now are perhaps affecting men and women more equally which is that like the big streaming services now have such enormous power in the industry that like the effect on individual actors and the fact that an individual actor can be at a very kind of low level of their career and kind of get plucked from obscurity to kind of be part of enormous TV shows that will come like completely change their life. That is a different kind of power imbalance than the, the one that kind of pertains to the sort of women and the way that they were treated in the industry. And that is in itself then becoming a kind of different sort of problem for younger actors, I think. You mentioned not going uh, to drama school and, and uh, you know, your your career as an actor in part sort of happening by accident. And you did have early success on TV and in film. And then you went back to complete the English degree that you'd abandoned to become an actress. Why was it so important to you to finish your studies? I think I didn't really know that I wanted to be an actor. For a lot of my 20s, I think I felt quite... Um, I mean, it was probably the sort of thing where like, I was the cause, I was always the person that was going to quit, you know, and then never did, obviously, <laughs> still, yeah. I'm still doing it. Um, but I, 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 I didn't have any other options, you know, so I needed to line up um, other options. So I made the kind of canny financial decision to do a degree in, in English literature. That was my, that was my backup in case I had to leave acting. But by the time I'd finished doing my degree, because I had to do it part-time, so it took ages. Um, then I, by then I'd started writing. And also there was this kind of move in the industry towards, you know, more women being able to sort of submit projects as writers and producers and there was more conversation around that so I sort of saw that as a potential kind of outlet for my creativity and like potentially a second career which I've now kind of been able hopefully been able to sort of come to fruition. Do you think you were so conscious of wanting a second career because you'd seen a a big change in kind of family fortunes when you were quite young because I think you 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 lived a, a rather glamorous-ish expat life in in Hong Kong and and Singapore and and then there was a sort of twist in the family fortunes and you moved back to England and and there was no pool. There was no pool, yeah. (laughs) There was no pool. Terrible, shocking moment for six-year-old Romola. Yeah, I think, well, we we didn't lead a particularly glamorous life. I mean, my, my dad worked for Lloyds Bank. He was bank manager. Um, but, you know, just by dint of living overseas at that time, you know, and being a British expat family in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, you had a very nice quality of life, which is one of the reasons my parents moved there. Um, but then, yeah, when we came back, you know, that that the, the kind of quality of life you have in the UK is different, you know, and that was a big change. I think like a lot of actors have peripatetic childhoods and it's not, you know, it's a bit of a truism, but it's a truism tourism for a reason that you know if you spend any kind of period of time being an outsider that kind of 
a potentially you know exercises your ability as a child to kind of pretend a bit like you have to pretend to fit in but also I think makes you quite aware of other people and makes you quite watchful and you know I had two experiences of being an outsider I was a bit of an outsider in the far east for obvious reasons and then also again when we moved to the west country um because it wasn't somewhere that anyone in my family was was from Mm. um you've got two young children I know that um every woman gets asked this and no man does but I've now made it my business to ask every man I speak to as well so I asked Benedict Cumberbatch two days ago how he copes with having a young family and doing the job he does which you know is is deeply immersive um is there a way that it could be made easier or is it just part of the reason why you know the movie industry requires you to be crazy about what you're doing because actually it does take you away from family and 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 you know the hours are ridiculous and and the the weeks you know segue into months etc etc yeah i think that there are definitely things that really need to change in the industry and i think that you know the fact that it has historically been so so biased against women working behind the camera uh, meant that it never had to evolve at all and still basically hasn't substantially changed you know in the hundred years that film has been an art form and then obviously the explosion in long-form television is putting tremendous pressure on people with young families or or people who are just carers you know elderly parents you know it's very rare to go to set and not have at least one person who's just absolutely pulling their hair out because they can't seem to make it work I mean unless you come to an agreement with your partner that they're going to be at home full-time and inevitably that tends to fall more on women and you know it, it I think it's a huge problem in the industry and you know the great thing about these you know, big streaming services, the Netflix, the Amazons, is that they could potentially really lead the way in ensuring that the industry was, you know, open to people who had caring responsibilities and supported them in the way that, you know, pretty much every other industry has been, has been, you know, forced, unfortunately, um, to, to make some kind of at least gestural effort to include carers in, in their workforce and support mm-hmm. them. Romola Gary, are we going to see you in front of the camera again, or is this it? Have you made the dive and you're going to be using it? As no, no, God, no, no, I'm very available for acting work. <laughs> don't, don't say that. Um, no, I'm, yeah, I'm very available for acting work and very reasonably priced. Um, no, they, I am doing a show at the moment we shot last year called Becoming Elizabeth, which will be coming out later this year on Stars, uh, which is about the, um, I suppose, the kind of Uh, growth and development of Queen Elizabeth I's kind of identity starts off when she's a teenager um, and I play Mary Tudor who becomes uh, Mary I in that show and that's coming out later this year. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. 
Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.